We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Launching something new is always tricky. It can be especially challenging to be entrepreneurial inside a global brand like Nike. You want to align with the broader goals of the organization while also staying nimble and creative. When you're introducing subscription models into a transactionally oriented organization, the stakes are even higher. Dave Cobbin spent over 12 years at Nike, many working with the innovation team. A few years ago, as a result of his work as part of a team looking at driving exponential growth at Nike, Dave identified an opportunity for subscription commerce as a potential way to achieve several key objectives. He incubated and developed what has come to be known as the Nike Adventure Club, a shoe subscription for children. Today, Dave is a co-founder of Unbreakable, an organization that helps startups and scaling businesses stay close to their customers as they launch and scale their own businesses. In this interview, Dave and I talk about how to start small with your subscription offering while thinking big, incorporating sustainability into an e-commerce strategy, and best practices for defining and optimizing your own membership MVP. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hi, Robbie. How are you doing? Good to be here. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Oh, me too. So I wanted to start by asking you if you could take us back. What was Nike's initial goal that led you to develop what has come to be known as the Nike Adventure Club? Yeah, so back in, I think it was around 2015 at uh, what's called Strategic Planning Kickoff, Mark Parker was the then CEO of Nike, asked a question of his leadership team saying, well, okay, we're going to be a $30 billion company in the next few years. How are we going to double that in the next 10 and so that question sort of posed in a sort of really provocative way to the leadership team made them start to think like, well, is it just going to be still selling shoes and shirts? And so at that time, we went away, took a year to kind of think about what possibilities could be. And having come from the sustainability world, which is where I started at Nike, I already had it in my mind about this kind of idea of subscriptions, because it's a way to build a relationship with a customer so that not only are you uh, uh, transacting, but also at end of life, you might be able to get those shoes and shirts back. And, and so we started to develop an idea around running because at the time I was a, a runner and I knew that every sort of 250 miles or so, you might need to replace your shoe uh, with a new one. And so that began a journey that ended up <laughs> after quite a few pivots with a kid's subscription business. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit about how that was, that, that was the innovation process, the lean innovation process that we went through. So can you talk just briefly about what sustainability meant for you and how it tied in with the innovation process around this particular tactic for yeah. doubling Nike's size? Yes, exactly. When I talk about sustainability in this particular instance, it is much more about the environmental sustainability side of it. Because at that time, you know, we were really thinking about circular business models, closed loop is another kind of buzzword that sort of exists around that. 
which is kind of the holy grail of environmental sustainability. The idea that you would sell a customer or give a customer access to a shoe or a shirt. And then at the end of life, when it's worn out, you would take that shoe or shirt back and turn it into something equally as valuable. Because downcycling, which is sort of, you know, quite common now, and, and Nike's been doing it for 20 years with Nike Grind, we would take a shoe back and grind it up and it'd be turned into sport courts or carpet underlay even. But it's really taking a valuable product and, and downcycling it. The, the true goal was be to take a shoe and turn it into another shoe and another shoe and another shoe. And so in thinking about that, that one of the hardest things about that, funnily enough, it isn't necessarily the uh, materials design and the actual making of a product that can be recycled is how do you get that shoe back at end of life? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, you know, myself as a runner, you know, one of the classic examples, you know, I would go in my cupboard and then there's the old shoes in there and you kind of go, what do I do with that kind of old shoe? And that was really the beginning. So that was, the, in a sense, the pitch that we made to Nike leadership team was kind of this idea of a subscription for runners. And, uh, and we went out, as you do in, in all these kind of startup experiences or even with a, the innovation process within a large company, go out and talk to runners. So we actually did a ton of interviews in Chicago, Dallas, New York, and Portland with runners. And what was really interesting is that the runners that had children, when they, we sort of showed them this kind of idea of a, of a running subscription where you'd swap the shoes over when they're worn out, they kind of go, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. But this would be amazing for kids. And then I, I realized, well, actually, that's such a, a, a common practice too, is that kids, of course, you know, there's inevitability to the, the fact that they grow and then they wear out shoes, you know, on the playground when they're sort of dragging their feet on the skateboard, et cetera. So I mean, a shoe really is a break for, yeah. for kids. And so at that point, we then pivoted from thinking about a running subscription to a kid's subscription. And we launched it originally. We, we sort of, this is back in 2016. We put a, together a website called Kicksback. And it was very, very uh, rough. I mean, you could only pick one shoe, which was the Roshi at the time. And it had six colors, but really one shoe. But we got 50 customers who came in and they paid $20 a month for three months. And, uh, and it showed that there was a demand for this. And the ad, the thing that we used to really tell me that this was working is the ad we used to show on Google, you know, very simple Google ad was kids grow fast, wreck shoes. And it's just everybody clicked on that because it's a truth. It doesn't matter how much you try to restrict your kids from jumping in that puddle or running in the mud, but they, they do it. So that was how it began. There's so many places I want to take this and I, <laughs> I need to stay focused. You got the green light to look at this subscription model as one of the many different tactics for exponential growth over the next period of time. And yeah. your first hypothesis was running shoes. Serious runners need to replace their shoes every X miles. And you could make that easier for them. And you got the feedback from those runners that said, yeah, that's interesting. But what's really interesting is my kids who both beat on the shoes and also outgrow them. So there's actually two reasons that they need shoes rather than just the, you know, I beat on the shoes with my running. And so you decided to pivot. I think one of the challenges that a lot of entrepreneurs face is when do you decide that it's time to pivot? Did you define in advance, we're going to look for this this milestone or this feedback, otherwise we're going to go back to the drawing board? Or did you just in the moment say, guys, it feels like there's a groundswell for kids' shoes. We've got to pivot. It's actually probably maybe, maybe useful to describe what was going on behind the scenes as far as Nike's 
uh, structurally what we were making it possible to do this. So one of the, you know, Mark having challenged his leadership team around, okay, let's look for new innovations that aren't necessarily product innovations, because obviously Nike's amazing at product innovations, you know, new shoes, new shirts, et cetera, new technologies. So this was really thinking in a terms of business model innovation. And so we created a, an incubator that was now called Valiant Labs. Uh, and, and really that was about testing, using the lean innovation methodology to test whether these things could fly. And so there were some really interesting principles that we had early on. And I was the first entrepreneur in residence to, to join this kind of new unit was part of our advanced innovation. And, and we were guided by, you know, very following very much, you know, what it would be if you were at Techstars or whatever, except the VCs were internal. They were Nike leadership team effectively added. They effectively were the VC. So five of the executive leadership team sat every 90 days and we would present to them, here's what we've learned in the last 90 days. And here's what we intend to learn in the next 90 days. And then um, slowly over time, we were increasing the investment by when we were reducing the risk. So de-risking any business model innovation for Nike. And once you had that process embedded, then the Nike leadership team felt very confident in trusting the entrepreneurs to come and say, hey, I've just spoken to 100 runners. Those that were parents says we should pivot to, to having a kids program. I'd like to pursue that. And they would then say yes. So it wasn't me on my own, kind of in isolation, sort of running around making these pivots. It was a very much a team game within the organization. That what's so interesting to me is that the team that you were presenting to, they were almost serving as a as a board, like what a startup would have as a board, as the investors, but they were actually Nike executives. So they weren't just thinking, is this going to make money on its own? But also somewhere in there was, does this make sense? For the bigger organization, but they kept you really off to the side. I talk in, in my books about this idea that when you're starting up inside a large organization, you're often off to the side, maybe with different rules, with different expectations, maybe lower resources. And then as you prove yourself, the organization is, is more and more confident about moving you towards, towards the center, Yeah, giving you, giving the ability to use the brand machine, giving you access to manufacturing, giving you access to the customer base, giving you more money, all of yeah. those things. Yeah. In fact, there's a really, it was a brilliant serendipity at that time, uh, Robbie, because Shoe Dog, the book, Phil Knight's sort of book of the history of Nike had just been released. And of course, everyone was reading it. And it really told the story of how Phil, of Nike was a startup, you know, and then the nine years of pain that he had to go through before it became the Nike that's more familiar to people today. And so Mark Parker, who was, you know, it joined, with Phil, you know, he was one of the first employees of the company. When he first came down to this little warehouse that we'd hired in downtown Portland and walked in and saw the shoe boxes kind of lying all over the floor, it was like, oh my God, this is what Nike was like 45 <laughs> years ago. And you're essentially building another Nike. And, and that principle that we could be off, off the grid, as, we, as it were, it really became a model for the whole of the incubator. So, you know, all the different startups that have that have come through that this process. You know, they, they often referred to you know Easy Kicks and what came out eventually was the snowplow because we were sort of trying out these process models, giving it a go and making a ton of mistakes, and and then sharing that failure because we always used to say the only true failure is is not sharing and and making the same mistake twice. So what we were trying to do was make. Make all the first mistakes and then yeah. the, the other startups coming through wouldn't have to. 
making the first mistakes with, with much lower stakes, right? Because you were easy kicks. I mean, so so keep sharing the story. So yeah. so you decided to go from running running shoes for adults to children's shoes. You tried the kicks back to see if there was any interest. And then I guess that evolved into easy kicks, which I actually featured in the Forever Transaction as a really interesting example of launching and then moving to the scaling phase. Can you walk me through what happened during that phase, the easy kicks phase? Yeah. And I think some of our listeners might be wondering, it's like, why are all these changing of names and why weren't they using the Nike name? And so that was another core principle of what we were trying to do was use what we call burner brands. And the two reasons is, one is we wanted clean data because people will do things for Nike, for the swoosh, that perhaps they might not do if it was an unknown brand. And the second is we didn't want to signal to the market that this is an area we were moving into or thinking about. So it was it was kind of like mysterious. And, and actually on my LinkedIn, it, it sort of I disappeared from the Nike. Funny, funny point. You know, when I was writing my book, I was looking for really good examples of entrepreneurship. And I was also looking for really good examples of subscription e-commerce. And I found Easy Kicks. And I thought, wow, this must be really good because this guy who used to be at Nike is running it. So I bet he has a lot of relationships over at <laughs> Nike. And I, I chased you down. I mean, I really, I tried to link in with you and yeah. I tried to find a way to connect. And then when I finally connected with you, I was really surprised to learn that you were, you actually hadn't left Nike, but you were working off in the corner in an entrepreneurial fashion. So, so you did a good job. And I think this is a really interesting point for people listening, especially if you're in a big organization one of the early questions is, what should the early relationship be between the innovation and the larger organization? Because there, there's always a trade-off there. That's right. I mean, what our belief was, and I think that's what, what's worked really well, is that you start off really small and you're completely independent. You're, you're effectively a, a completely separate startup. And we were using Shopify as our e-commerce system, You know, Stripe as the payment processor, and, and really were totally you know funded by Nike but really operating as a small team outside of Nike and interestingly quite a lot of our employees within Easy Kicks were not Nike employees they were you know contracted directly so that there was an independence you know of thinking as well as as kind of doing you know so kicks back and the reason it was called kicks back of course because still at that time in my mindset was this idea of sustainability it's actually about getting shoes back, going back. but what happened was when we started to talk more and more with parents is you realize that this this whole hassle of shopping for kids' shoes was this enormous problem, and every parent has it, from toddler through to sort of you know their, their teenagers and their feet foot size settles down. That that that's a universal thing. So that the size of the prize, the sort of total addressable market, is vast and in, and never ending, of course, because people keep having kids. So then we start to think about well, what are we solving for here? And that realize it's about easy kicks, you know, how to get kicks really easily, a convenience story rather than a sustainability story. I mean, we kept the sustainability element in there by uh, allowing parents to send back shoes at the end of life, but it didn't become the main driver. And that was a really important pivot for us and, and, and a sort of, as we launched Easy Kicks. By the way, the scale of this is still hundreds, hundreds of customers rather than thousands or tens of thousands. And around Christmas time, 2016, 17, I'll never forget, we were really starting to sort of reach a plateau on our growth. And we, I was like, hold on, there's so many parents out there, what's going on? And um, we did a really important uh, exercise, which was we interviewed 10 customers who signed up. 
And we managed to trace 10 people who'd given us their email address but hadn't signed up and find out why not. And uh, actually, the answer came back around trust, is that you, people didn't, and they use this phrase, um, it's too good to be true. And I was like, what do you mean it's too good to be true? Surely that's a reason to sign up. And they were like, well, I couldn't believe that this company called Easy Kicks could possibly have these brilliant Nike shoes at $20 a month. And of course, we were you know, using trying to do discounting to, to reduce the numbers. And so they were like, this can't be for real. And then the people who had signed up would say, oh, I didn't believe I was actually going to get sent a pair of real Nikes. I thought it would be fake. And then they did. They were really excited. And of course, they were telling their friends, which was helping on the way. So at that point, we then added with Nike. So Easy Kicks with Nike. And on the website, we sort of said, we are the official, you know, Nike is our official supplier of shoes. So not trying to indicate that they is, Nike owns the brand, but is just a partner. And at that point, the growth exploded. And we jumped really from about 300 customers to 3,000 in the space of one summer through the summer 2017. And at that point, we really started to start say, okay, we do have something here. We, used to, we have a there there. You know, there's a there there, you know, so, so getting closer to product market fit. And at that point, Nike started to get interested. And then they came back with some really good challenging questions, which is like, how do we make it really profitable? Because of the, the original model was very similar to people really familiar with MoviePass will recognize it was this $20 a month unlimited swaps. Because parents had originally told us that their kids need about four shoes a year. So if on an average shoe price was $60. So, you know, over the course of three months, that's $20 a month. And what happened was that people, as they received the boxes and they really got excited by it, they started to swap faster and faster and faster. And then we started to see this pattern emerge about a third of our customers were swapping monthly, a third were swapping every 60 days, and a third were swapping every 90 days. So it made us realize that we had to pivot the pricing plans to accommodate this kind of almost time-based approach. And, and that allowed us to say $20 a month will buy you four shoes a year, $30 a month will buy you six shoes a year. And if you really want to get a new shoe every month for your kid, which 10% of our customers did, by the way, we said it was $50 a month. So we gave them a little discount uh, because they were going to give us $600 a month, which is from a lifetime value point of view, awesome. And that was what we started to realize is that looking at the KPIs is that, you know, people are sticking with us on average about sort of 16 months. Uh, so the LTV on that, you know, is nearly a thousand dollars for, for some of our wow. you know, most expensive customers. It's really, really good. So I want to, I want to break this down. $600 a year, which is fantastic for that, that 10% group. They almost have a different objective though. Like when I think about a forever promise, your initial forever promise was really never have kids outgrow their shoes, never have kids destroy their shoes and not have another pair ready to go. But for some of these parents, there was this other promise that they wanted, which was around maybe fashion or variety or status in some other way. And I feel like this is another one of those big moments of inflection for a lot of organizations. When, at what point do you decide that you need to have multiple tiers? multiple offers for different segments. Yeah, you've really pointed out something brilliant, Robbie, because one of the, the other key things I would say to any corporate in innovator out there is constantly be looking at your personas. Who, who are the early adopters? What's their profile? And what problem are you solving for them? So as you point out, you know, originally it was a convenience-based business. You know, so at $20 a month to get four shoes a year was plenty enough. But what had happened was people had seen 
and got excited about the idea of having more for their kids. And what was really interesting when we looked at that persona is that the majority of the people that were in that 10% bracket were men. And actually, they were sneakerheads. And so they themselves as adults buying shoes for themselves on a monthly basis. And of course, they wanted to, their kids to come along on that journey too. You know, there's a quite a big phenomenon around mini me. So the adults and the kids have kind of matching shoes going on. So yes, there was a, was almost a, a complete, you could almost say there was a completely se- a second business opportunity, actually, because one of the other things they asked us was, well, could we have more Jordans? you know, more of what they call the high heat sneaker. So you could almost have a premium tier, which is uh, shoes that might be retailing at $150 instead of $60, having a plan for that. So that was, that was, uh, uh, we didn't, we didn't pursue that because we felt that the the larger market opportunity was in the, is in the general convenience sort of sector, but having uh, alternative plans also not just solves problems for different audiences. It also helps reference so $20 a month, and we, there was this crazy phrase that we'd heard, this idea of just a dub, you know, $20, oh, it's just a dub, which is, you know, it's just a small amount of money that every month you'd almost don't think about. And, uh, and, and having a $50 a month plan made you kind of realize, oh, well, you know, I may, I'm actually, you know, this is, oh, this is very reasonably priced. And people would often say that they would come back and say, it's very affordable. And then we were sort of, but actually, twenty dollars a month, you're paying the same price for the shoes if you would pay sixty dollars. But the the fact that it's broken down twenty dollars, twenty dollars, twenty dollars makes it seem affordable, and so it's perceptual really than than reality. But again, you you sort of learn these things along the way, and they start to then inform you to how you lock those kind of uh, insights into the actual plan itself. And we always we always had this kind of phrase, Robbie, like we're always in beta. We're always, always evolving. You never, you never know whether you're going to, that, that's not the, the final solution. You never get to that final solution. You're always just evolving and adding value along the way. I love that you said that because I wanted to really focus this episode around getting to MVP, finding product market fit. And what I think is really interesting is that you continued to raise the bar on what product market fit looked like, layering in more value over time. And I think about this a lot that you you said at the beginning that this innovation wasn't so much about the kind of innovation Nike usually did, which was innovating around shirts or shoes, some kind of technical innovation. This was really about innovation of a a business model. And I think a key element of a subscription-based business model is that the offering has to improve all the time, not just as a headline benefit, that is what gets someone to sign up, but for the people that are already there, it has to keep improving. So I'd love if you continued us on this journey. So you're still easy kicks. You're learning about your customers. You've, you've expanded the number of tiers. You've maybe limited uh, what certain tiers get to manage for profitability. What was the next phase for you? Yeah, the key word is all about retention. You know, and, and as you know, subscription sort of lovers obsess about loyalty and retention. Uh, that's the key KPI that you're sort of searching for along the way. And, um, you know, I was really lucky is that I, I we brought on board a, a lady called Dominique Chortel, and she became what we dubbed our chief happiness officer. And really her remit was, and her team was to try and understand how do we improve retention? And she developed this brilliant sort of formula that we started to use, which is retention is a factor of three things. Firstly, great acquisition. 
actually. And and what we started to realize is, for example, people we brought on if we'd done some discounting weren't always the best retainers. You know, they weren't they weren't as loyal. The second element is around frictionless service. You know, is basically do the do all the things that are expected of you really well. So the packages should turn up on time. The boxes should be well packaged. The shoes should be clean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it should be easy to order. And then the third element is around what caused surprise and delight, which are those things that you know the customer when they receive the box or when they're having an experience or customer service interaction. There's a little magic involved that makes them feel really good and really special. And, and one of the sort of values that you and I have talked about before, Robbie, is around generosity. They're giving you an awful lot as part of a relationship. And so being generous back is a really important part of how you retain people, how, you, how they stick. And one of the things also Dominic did was we were still as easy kicks, but this idea of, and she had, she's got two daughters, and what is putting in some activities for kids to do with in their shoes. And um, it, we sent it out, just put it together, very, you know, cartoonish, you know, sort of little staple together kind of thing. And the reaction was visceral. The mums loved it. The kids loved it. It really gave them a reason to feel like this was part of something bigger than just a, a sort of business service, but actually more like a club. And so that really helped us as we started to think about transitioning from easy kicks into the into the core itself, and of course, this is a, again a huge part of the journey. Is the moment where you go, okay, we've learned enough in our burner brand to kind of say, okay, we feel confident now that Nike effectively would acquire us or you know transition us into the core itself, which was then the transition from easy kicks to Nike Adventure Club, and that transition to Nike Adventure Club. The reason why we changed the name. Because often people would sort of say, well, Easy Kicks is such a great name. You know, why didn't Nike Easy Kicks? And the thing was that we learned, um, and, and again, Dominique sort of helped us here, was this wonderful phrase she used to use, which is, well, we acquire the mum, but we retain the kid. Because actually it's the kid pestering mum to go, oh, I can't wait for my next box to come. And in fact, one of the videos that one of the mums sent us was, uh, it was wonderful. There's a, a young boy at the door and the FedEx van was pulling up. She sent us a little handheld video. And the boy's going, the, the shoe man's here, the shoe man's here. You know, so it's, it's just so excited to get their boxes uh, with the cool kicks in it. And then what we added was then the adventure packs. And so that helped us, give us the clue to where we wanted to take the name. It was and a sort of, a kid would have a t-shirt on that said Nike Adventure Club, but they might probably wouldn't have a t-shirt on that said Nike Easy Kicks. You know, it's not really, not very cool for kids. So that was the reason why we did the transition of the name. What I think is really important for people to take away, I mean, there's a couple of things that uh, chief happiness officer retention formula is great. Great acquisition plus frictionless service plus surprise and delight is a great way to think about how to retain people. Also, this headline benefits versus engagement benefits, I think is so important. And it's really interesting how this came to be in your journey. The acquisition was all about how do we attract the mom? And particularly, it seems like it was around pricing, right? $20 a month seemed first too good to be true and then seemed like a good deal and appealed to them kind of that, you know, kind of smoothing out the purchasing curve really appealed to the moms. But then you layered in the engagement benefit for the kids with the adventure packs. I think that's really important, that balancing of acquisition benefits and engagement retention benefits. And also it's interesting that that was the moment or that was one of the key things that pushed you over the edge into being 
more officially part of Nike and using that new brand. So that's that's really interesting. Now, I had a question for you. You know, a couple of times you've talked about the sneakerhead parents. You talked about this possibility for the, you know, originally it was a running a running club idea and it became a kids club idea. Did you ever think about indirect benefits to Nike, especially as you're making this transition into being more officially a part of Nike? A lot of organizations invest in subscription initially because they see it maybe there's direct revenue but it's also a relationship building tool it's also a relationship expanding tool reaching new markets and the real payoff isn't going to come from the subscription fees it's going to come from dad buying shoes to keep up with his kid or buying your clothes to go with your running shoes because you're already getting everything from Nike yeah how did that play in if at all especially with your board of advisors yeah, no, it's a great call, Robin. I'm, I'm sure a lot of other corporate individuals will have this too, which is if I take Nike as an example, you know, there were there were different groups within Nike that we would interact with. So for example, Nike Kids, you know, that team itself were really, really interested, not just in the say the financial benefits, but also the fact that you're, you know, from two years old, potentially these kids are never wearing any other shoe except Nike. So you're really building a brand loyal lover from such a young age that you're going to be reaping the benefits of that in for decades. And so that was a really important part for them around that. And, and that's why they were very much really fans of the whole adventure pack stuff, because you're teaching also kids to move, you know, getting them active, um, playing uh, is such an important thing as well. And of course, COVID only exacerbated that enormously. So it wasn't just about the financial side of things, although you know, when we were presenting to the executive leadership team, oh, tell me about lifetime value. And one of the big comparisons that was really interesting to make was what a typical subscriber is different from a transactor and, and actually trying to met, for example, parents generally would be buying four shoes a year. And generally they'll, you know, maybe if Nike has a sort of 50% market share, it's getting half of those sales. Well, with Nike Adventure Club, you're getting all of those sales. And so that was a really powerful KPI that people got very excited about. And the other thing, of course, is that it's the, the knock-on effects of like, well, if I have a relationship with this person, then communication is, is much greater. You know, we had a, you know, sort of 34% open rates on emails. So if we're sending them a communication and say, hey, mum, would you like something? Or do you want socks with that? Or... You know, you can start to see it's really, and that's why I love about this, you know, this whole area of membership and subscriptions is around the relationship and your generosity will beget generosity from the customer as well. So there are all these knock-on benefits that aren't just related to the gross margin or EBIT, for example. Talking about also the financial short and long-term benefits and also the more mission-driven benefits around building trust an alignment around impact on the world or impact on your life. We started with talking about sustainability. Did sustainability kind of continue to weave its way through or was that something that you that you kind of left to the side? No, we kept it going all the way through, not only because we really care about making an impact, a positive impact on the planet, but actually because parents wanted it. There was a problem that needed to be solved. And the best way I can describe it is by saying that, or describing the times that I used to go and visit parents in their homes. And I, one of the things I would often say towards the end of our interviews was, can I have a look in your closet? Or can I have a look in your garage? And people would open the closet and out would pour just shoes and 
all kinds of things to the point where I, I was looking in a house in New Jersey and I said to the, she had two sons and I said, well, you've got a little girl's shoe here. And she said, well, now that's my daughter. She's at college. And I was like, but look, it's like you've had this one little girl shoe. And it's like, I know, I keep meaning to go to Goodwill, but you know, and there's a guilt. There was a sort of guilt building up, which is, oh, I don't know what to do with all these old shoes. And the great thing about Nike Grind is that we could take any shoe and grind it up. And so we, what we did is we pivot from asking people to return every single shoe as they bought a new shoe. So it used to be a sort of one-in-one-out model, which was A, hard for the customer to organize, but also expensive for us from a shipping point of view, is to send them out a big bag and we do a shoe drive twice a year. And they would, so they would just put this bag in the closet, fill it all with the old shoes, then zip it up and send it back to us, you know, around Earth Day and then around Thanksgiving with the two times a year that we did the shoe drives. And so it was still there and very convenient, much more convenient for parents to do it like that. The other element as well, Robbie, is again, when you're listening to the customer, you're responding to that. So for example, last year with the social justice issues around George Floyd, you know, one of the things that we did is again, surprise and delight. We sent some, you know, some communication out around how to talk to your kids about race. Majority reaction was very, very positive. I mean, there were people who complained about it and it was like, well, you've got to make a stand. But the majority of our customers were really reacted positively to that. So when I think of sustainability, it might not always be environmental sustainability, but also social justice and community impact as well. And and that, again, that comes from just being responsive, listening to the customer, understanding what their needs are, and then having the sort of bravery to just go, let's give it a go. Let's try it. That always in beta approach, which is so necessary for subscriptions and membership. Always being in, in beta mode means that you never have all the answers. And I know that one of the things that you did in this process is you reached out to other entrepreneurs, other people that were building entrepreneurial new businesses inside larger brands. And I'm interested in, first of all, how was that process of reaching out to people? And second of all, what did you learn from that that effort? Because I, I often encourage my clients to do that, to reach out to other similar companies with similar challenges but they rarely do it, just to be totally honest. I am obsessed about this, Robbie. This is like, and, and I, this is where the joys of LinkedIn is, is so good, is that I would often go into LinkedIn and search like retention or you know membership or things like that and just see what pops up and people's names. And I would reach out to them and say, hi, my name is Dave. I'm trying to build this subscription business for kids. Love to talk to you. Do you have 30 minutes that we can talk? And a majority of people were really responded positively because I think it's, it's they love, they want to talk about what they're doing too, and they want to learn from each other. And I, I think I probably, you know, I tried to do five conversations like that every month, oh, you know, wow. five sort of 15 to 30 minute conversations. I mean, and the people were so generous. I, if you're listening, all your my friends out there on LinkedIn, thank you. Because, you know, people are so generous. And that's actually how I met Matt you know, from Vinyl Me Please was through one of those conversations. He gave me a ton of like, what's your retention numbers? What's our retention numbers? You know, these kind of comparisons. We had this really interesting little group conversation going on around, who is is it debit card? You know, are they debit cards or credit cards? Or all these little insights about how people pay for subscriptions, which is really useful for you. The corporate innovation, you know, other folks that are doing this in other corporates, the one of the big ones that I talk a lot about that everyone goes to is the innovator's dilemma, which is this when you're, you know, we were working on Shopify and Stripe, but obviously Nike's core tech stack is, you know, massive enterprise sort of scale. And so having to bridge that gap 
is a huge effort actually, you know, and, and Nike's going through a, a lot of tech improvements at the moment that are going to help it get ready for, to support the membership business models going forward. Great book, by the way, The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. For those of you who are, are looking for something juicy to read, thinking about thinking about subscriptions, memberships, new businesses. So you're moving on from Nike after, I think, 13 years. Yeah. And you and Matt Fiedler, who was a guest uh, earlier this season from Vinyl Me Please, are starting a new organization called Unbreakable. Can you tell me about the problem that you're trying to solve with Unbreakable? The simple answer is, you know, how do you actually go out and build or you evolve a subscription business um, that is going to be successful? And so we bring in the practices that we've done. You know, Matt's done them in the wild. I've done them within the corporate innovation work. You know, we have the practical expertise of having done it. And we kind of what I my phrase would sort of get shit done is to help really, you know, practitioners get shit done in their own organizations or within their startup to kind of make it work, you know, and and we use the same principles that I've just described before, which is, you know, you might start small, you do some exploration stuff, maybe a lot of say tests, you know, kind of talking with people about, you know, what's the problem that needs to be solved, trying to identify what that problem is. Then you might build a rough solution or you take what your current solution is and try some different techniques out, different options, and, and then validate. Ultimately, you're trying to ask questions, am I actually solving that problem? And am I doing it in a way where a customer is going to be satisfied and therefore want to be in a relationship that was going to be mutually beneficial financially for the company, let's say, and solving their problem from a customer point of view? Awesome. And what advice do you have for people in that situation who are who are just getting started or trying to build their business model right now and and get shit done? What advice do you have for these subscription entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, e-commerce practitioners? If you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? One piece of advice is talk to people, talk to the customer, find out what their problem is. That has been the one thing that I've been most surprised by is I'll go and talk to you know another corporate innovator and say, so what did the customers say? And they go, oh, we haven't done that yet. I'm like, well, that's the, uh, the answer comes not from any talking to other people in your organization. It comes from talking to an end consumer. And so eventually when you've talked to them enough and you've found a potential solution, then go test that again with the customers. You know? Talk to your customer, I think is, is great yes. wisdom. Okay. Before we wrap up, this has been such a good interview. I, we could go on for a lot longer, I know. I wanted to do a speed round. Are you game? Yeah. First subscription you ever had? Netflix. Your favorite subscription this year? Disney Plus. Your favorite Nike shoes? Oh, uh, Air Force Ones. Air Force Ones. Your superpower? Uh, creativity. And a time when you felt like a member, like you really belonged? Uh, probably Soho House. When I, I was one of the sort of founding members of Soho House, that was very special. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Dave, for being a guest on the show and for sharing all of your experiences and advice with our Subscription Stories audience. It was a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Robbie. I so enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Dave Cobbin. For more about Dave and Unbreakable, go to unbreakable.com. That's U-N-B-R-K-B-L-E.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Dave, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. 
Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories. Subscription Stories.